So open up your Bibles to Matthew 22, verses 23 and 33, uh, will be our text this morning. And as we come here, and we're well familiar with the conflicts that Jesus has been enduring during this final week of his life, he now comes into yet another second attempt by the Jewish leadership to discredit his ministry and cause him to lose favor among the crowds. Last week we saw this attempt by the Pharisees or some disciples of the Pharisees and some Herodians who sought to bring Jesus into conflict with either Rome or some among the crowds through the issue of paying taxes to Rome. This morning, a second group, the Sadducees, will seek to make him look foolish by posing to him a question regarding the resurrection from the dead, the same resurrection that we've sung about in at least two songs specifically this morning. Now it is striking how often the resurrection came under attack in the early church. You'll remember some of these texts in 2 Timothy 2, near the end of his life, Paul is writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, and he tells him this, Hymenaeus and Philetus have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset, upset the faith of some. There were... Those false teachers going around among the church, spreading lies about the resurrection from the dead, in this case, saying that it indeed had already taken place. Paul would address a similar error in the Corinthian church when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 14, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. There were those going around denying the resurrection from the dead, or at least distorting it in some way that would take away the reality that Christ did, in fact, bodily raise from the dead for His people. Now, the resurrection, then, is central to the gospel of Christ. It is, therefore, no surprise that Satan would do all in his power to deceive and to distort the truth of the resurrection, and not only among the church, but also among men in general and world religions, which are essentially man's attempt to somehow prepare and explain what happens after death. So some... Particularly in Eastern religions, the idea is that the soul will simply be absorbed back into the great one from which it came. Others, present even in the first century, teach that the body is just put in the ground and the soul continues in some kind of undefined or loosely defined spiritual state for eternity. Usually one of great happiness in some sense. And then there are the materialists, such as atheists and the group that is in our passage this morning, who think that the body just dies and then the soul ceases to exist. And so that's all that there is. So Paul would say later in 1 Corinthians 15 to those who would hold this, well then eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's the philosophy of those who hold to this. Yet against all of these stands the clear reality and testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ who did in fact rise from the dead. And it is to reject the plain teaching of Scripture. 
Paul says this again in the first part of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And to the philosophers in Athens, in Acts 17, he says this, that the resurrection was God's proof to all men after he's now over... uh, no longer overlooking the times of ignorance as he did in the past, but in fact, Christ the Son was raised and is returning, and all men are without excuse because God has raised him from the dead, Acts 17.31. Now, the specific issue of Christ's resurrection is not what's immediately before us in Matthew chapter 22. It's not immediately the issue that these Sadducees are rejecting or denying, although it soon would be, because the resurrection was soon to take place, because the crucifixion was soon to take place. And no doubt, some among this group, at least some from among the Sadducees, are among the chief priests and the elders who counseled together at the end of Matthew after the Roman soldiers came and reported that the body was not there, that it had been taken, they then promulgated the lie that some had come and stolen it, rejecting the clear evidence that Christ did indeed rise from the dead. They were determined to deny this truth. They would deny the reality that Christ was raised after he was raised, and here they are denying even the possibility. And in either case then, they are displaying the hard heart of unbelief. Why Christ holds up the clear testimony of Scripture and the reality of the resurrection of all men. And in doing this, not only is He exposing their error, but He's also, in mercy, causing them to consider the reality of their eternal souls. So let's read Matthew 22, 23-33, and then we'll look more closely. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned Him, asking... Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second, and the third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Go back to verse 23 and let's notice then the foolishness of unbelief. And first let's briefly set the context. He says, on that day, on that day, that's when these events took place. Matthew does not say how much time elapsed, but it came clearly soon after the challenge of the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians. And it's probably accurate to say that maybe some among this group of Sadducees were present when Jesus had his confrontation with the Pharisees. And so they would have heard his answer, and now they're making their own attempt. 
And besides being a display of wickedness, this is really also, all of these interactions here, a great display of the arrogance of these leaders. They're essentially saying, well, the Pharisees may not have been able to expose him, but we, obviously being more elite, will. We will be able to undo him by our own wit. And not unlike the Pharisees will do, in our next passage next week, in verse 34, it says, When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. And so there's kind of this one-upmanship that's going back and forth between these common enemies of the Savior about who has the wits and the ability to undo him and to make him look foolish. Although not unexpectedly, each group will leave in the same way as their predecessors, silenced and humiliated before the crowds. The one they came to discredit will discredit them. Sadly, however, not only will they leave silenced, but they will still, as best of our knowledge, or to the best of our knowledge, they will leave still unconverted. Because that's the issue. These are not questions of faith seeking understanding, but unbelief seeking to justify itself and discredit the one whom they have set their hearts and their souls to resist. They are then here a picture of the foolishness of unbelief. The foolishness of unbelief. And so let's look at this first group, and I would label them unbelieving liberals. Unbelieving liberals. Now Matthew identifies, again, the second group as Sadducees, and then he makes that parenthetical comment, who say that there is no resurrection. Now this is an important statement. And it sets the stage for the motives, sort of the behind-the-scenes reality that is driving this whole scene, this whole interchange. Now, it's important then for us to briefly stop and just understand and be reminded of who these Sadducees are. They are mentioned seven times in the Gospel of Matthew, not very many times, actually. The first time they appear is in chapter 3, verse 7, when they are rebuked by John the Baptist. They're appearing also with the Pharisees. And they had come out hypocritically to be baptized. And John calls them out before all of the crowds that are lined up along the Jordan. And he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? They appear again in chapter 16, verse 1 and 11, where Jesus warns his disciples about them. And he says, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which he later identifies as their teaching. In other words, beware of the insidious and deadly influence of their hypocrisy and their false teaching. So in our only interaction or introduction to this group in Scripture, they are essentially, by God's assessment, spiritually dead, under God's wrath, and false teachers who are promoting error and the spiritual lies of Satan to his people. That's how the New Testament identifies them to us. Now, where did they come from? It is suggested by Josephus that they trace their lineage back to Zadok, who was high priest during the time of David, although that's not certain. They were, in fact, heavily involved in the priestly class in Judaism among the Jews. And in Acts 4.1 and Acts 5.17, they're closely associated with both the temple and the inner circle of the high priest at that time. Along with the Pharisees, they were members of the Sanhedrin, that ruling body of Israel, which we're confronted with several times in the Scriptures. But unlike the Pharisees, they were largely political opportunists who exploited the situation between Rome, and they did so to their own advantage. 
The Pharisees then held the most religious sway over the people, but the Sadducees held the most wealth and the most political power. And they were therefore highly influential with Rome, but they were not among the people. They were largely despised by the Jews at large. As a matter of fact, Josephus says this, he says much, but here's one important thing. He says they are able to do almost nothing of themselves, for when they become magistrates, they bind themselves to the notions of the Pharisees because the multitude would not otherwise bear them. In other words, there were even many disagreements between this group of the Sadducees and the Pharisees in relation to aspects of the Word of God and to the law, to the sacrifices, and to the temple. But because they were so despised by the people and the Pharisees really held the religious sway over them, they condescended to do what the Pharisees taught just so they wouldn't be totally rejected by the people. Now, because their authority was primarily attached to the temple and to Rome, when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, they essentially disappeared as a significant party within Judaism and eventually became extinct. Now, what did they believe? That's really the more important issue. Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention that they denied the reality of the resurrection. They denied the reality of the resurrection. And that was really the key identifying theological point from the perspective of the New Testament. Luke adds, recording the speech of Paul in Acts 23.8, when he was brought before the Sanhedrin... He says this, knowing that they were made up of both, the Sanhedrin was made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees. Paul says this, or Luke adds this, the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Now the reason he says that is because Paul, knowing that there was division among the Sanhedrin, had said that he was on trial for the resurrection, and at that point a great dissension arose among them, and confusion overtook the situation at hand, and Paul ended up buying a reprieve for himself and some more time. But the point here to notice is that they essentially denied the supernatural, And the fact is, as empty as the Pharisees were, they were the most theologically accurate religious party among Judaism. The Sadducees were basically, as I mentioned, the theological liberals of the day, like our Bart Ehrmans or German scholars and so on that deny the reality of the resurrection and the truthfulness of Scripture. That was them for the first century within Judaism. And they were essentially materialist, which is a necessary consequence of denying the reality of the resurrection. They also rejected the authority of the prophets and accepted as primary only the authority of the Torah or the law of Moses, the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. And they were essentially pre-Arminians, if I could be a bit anachronistic or which is something that didn't develop later, because they believed strongly in the free will of man. So basically they were man-centered pragmatists who conveniently compromised doctrine to suit their own ends. Although interestingly they were more strict and literalistic in their interpretation of the law of Moses than the Pharisees were. But nonetheless they only accepted the first five books and rejected the rest. Now notice then this group who is professing to be wise and who come and try to humiliate Jesus with a foolish question that flows from their unbelief. Look down at verse 24 
Verse 24, and notice an unbelieving question. So these are unbelieving liberals then coming with an unbelieving question. And of course, the question is insincere. It is, it's mocking, in fact. It's meant to be belittling, to be humiliating to Jesus. And so they say in verse 24, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies, having no children, his brother is next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother, so also the second and the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died in the resurrection. Therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Now the first part there, verse 24, is a loose quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. And this is essentially the law of Moses' teaching of what we know as Leverite marriage. Leverite marriage. It did not begin, actually, in the law of Moses in, in the sense of Deuteronomy 25, but the same uh, scenario is mentioned all the way back in Genesis chapter 38 through 38, and a son named Onan, who was supposed to raise up children to his brother, but failed to do so and was judged by God. Essentially, the law said this, that if a brother married a wife but died before he had a son, and note here, if he had a daughter but not a son, the law would still be in effect. If he died without a son, then it was the duty of the unmarried brother in the same house to marry his brother's widow in hopes of raising up a son. And the point was, is that by raising up a son, he would carry on the family name and preserve that family's inheritance in the covenant blessings and promises of God in Israel. Now, this law was later expanded to include even the closest relative, which is what we saw in the book of Ruth between Boaz and Ruth. Now, with the basic premise established in their mind from the Mosaic law, they then proceed to give their absurd scenario, which is, again, designed to make the Pharisaic doctrine of the resurrection look foolish. And at this point, after they give their scenario, they, like the Pharisees before them, think that they just have Jesus trapped. Like, where is he going to go? There is no answer to this that you can give without looking essentially ridiculous. And so they think they have him. And so they ask him, therefore, whose will she be in the resurrection? The implication is, is that if you believe in a resurrection, then you end up with an impossible or at least morally grotesque situation in the eternal state. And Moses' instructions would then be absurd. And in fact, if there was no resurrection, his instruction would be absurd. And the reality is, because they are theological liberals and deny the scriptures, they also deny the logic and reason that Jesus is going to confront them with from the very text that they claim to believe. And again, he will expose the foolishness then of their unbelief. So that's the unbelieving foolishness of these leaders. Let's notice second then the wisdom of God and notice first his rebuke. Jesus simply says to them, you are mistaken. You are mistaken. And this is actually rather a soft translation. The term has the general idea of to lead astray or to mislead, often translated those ways and also as deceive. In fact, if you have uh, the New English Translation or Holman Christian Standard Bible, they translate it as deceive. It's the same term used in Matthew 18 when he speaks of the sheep who goes astray as a metaphor for the sinner who is duped by their sin and travels down a path of iniquity that needs to be rescued. In Matthew 24, he uses it to refer to false prophets who will mislead many by their lies. 
And so here you have this group that Jesus identifies as being mistaken, or we could say deceived, misled. You have erred in regard to your interpretation. But the real heart of what he's saying is you are deceived because you're already self-deceived. You've already been duped. No wonder you can't understand it. They were blind to the truth, walking in darkness. They were manifesting, even at this time, the spirit of Antichrist. So being in darkness, Jesus declares to them, after he says you are mistaken, he says you are not understanding or you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And this is an extremely serious rebuke. It is to say to these religious leaders, you don't even know God's revelation and you don't even know his power. If you did, your silly scenario would never have been given. It comes from a place of spiritual ignorance and darkness. And I want to note here that Jesus could have used softer language. There was a, a softer way to reply, but he didn't. And why didn't he? It's because these are very serious charges that they're bringing against both him and the word of God. And they're seeking to discredit him and his ministry. And so Jesus has to confront that with the utmost seriousness. He has to confront it head on, which is exactly what he does And he sees right through their intentions and must forcefully expose then their error. Note then his rebuttal. His rebuttal to them. And he does his rebuttal is then first going to just contradict their accusation first with a direct statement of their ignorance and then he's going to expose their ignorance of Scripture. Notice first the direct statement. He says to them, verse 30, For in the resurrection, so you are mistaken, you don't understand Scripture, the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And so Jesus first simply affirms the reality of the resurrection. They stated it in hypocrisy. Jesus is affirming it in truth. He's not disputing them on that point. However, the second part of the statement, Jesus asserts a truth about the resurrection that is very important, but often misunderstood. Namely, that there is no marriage in heaven because we will be like angels in our resurrected body. That's the reason that there will be no resurrection. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to make just a couple of points for clarity's sake, because I know there are questions that are going through your mind, and probably how you've heard this verse misused many times and so I'm just going to state this briefly and not even all that I have in my notes here but first of all is this Jesus is not making a universal statement about the natures of angels beyond the fact that they do not marry that's the only thing that he's holding up for comparison there are marriages made in heaven but there are no marriages in heaven among angels or among men that's his point In other words, he does not say we will become like angels. He says we will be as angels only in relation to marriage. That's all that he's saying here. He's not making a statement the saying that we'll be some androgynous beings in heaven. We won't. In very fact, we will most likely still be, I believe firmly, male and female in heaven. We will be what we were here. Jesus was crucified as a male and he was risen as a male. A male, and so it would be the other way around. But that isn't Jesus' point. He's not entering into that debate here. He's also saying then that marriage will no longer be a necessary condition in heaven. Why not? Well, it won't be because there was no male or female. That's not his point. 
It is to say, however, that in the resurrection, that there will be a fulfillment of God's design in marriage that is only known as a foretaste here, this side of heaven. Marriage, we've already mentioned in the discussion of the wedding feast, is something that is fully realized in our complete and full realization of our union with Christ at the consummation of our salvation. In other words, everything God designed in marriage on earth, the joyful intimacy of union and companionship, in which there's the full giving of self to another in love and imparting of your very own life, will be even more gloriously fulfilled in the resurrection. That's the only point. And it will be fulfilled because we will be with Christ. So marriage here, even the best of marriages, is only a foretaste of the fullness of joy and intimacy and communion that we will have with Christ and with the Father in the new heavens and in the new earth. We will enjoy that intimacy forever and ever. That's the great hope of believers. We will, in His presence, drink of the fullness of His joy, blameless with great joy, knowing the fullness of the Holy Spirit. But again, those are not exactly the issues that he's addressing here. But they are implied here because that is the very nature of their attack. What is it going to be like in heaven and in the resurrection? And Jesus says, that is an ignorant question because you don't understand the nature of the resurrection, nor do you understand the power of God. You're missing the point. You're missing the point. The resurrection is a reality that is so much more glorious, he's saying, than anything than you can even begin to fathom. If you simply believed the promises of God, knew His power, then you wouldn't ask such an ignorant question. And the fact that they denied the resurrection, this is interesting, and were still religious, is somewhat of an enigma. That's as liberal scholars do today. They dedicate their entire life to understand a book that they deny everything about. Why do they do that? Well, who can know the motives of every man? But indeed, it was little more for them than cultural, cultural heritage, or it gave them some general sense of moral grounding, or it gave them prominence among their people, or whatever it is, but it rendered them quite foolish because of their unbelief. And the fact is that their denial of the resurrection was simply a convenient way to justify their selfish pursuits. If there is no resurrection, then what is there not? There's no consequences for sin, right? There's nothing to answer for. There's no actions that they have to give an account for before God. So they can live with a conscience that is hardened to a proper fear of God and the eternal consequences of sin. Jesus said, don't fear man who can only kill the body. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. But that's not a problem if there's no resurrection. So they can harden their heart at that very point. As do men today. It is a convenient way to deny the reality of sin and consequences for sin. It's an easy way to justify living to this world. But they are wrong and they are without excuse. And again, they knew the scripture. So if anybody should have known this, they should have known it. It's everywhere, even in the Old Testament. We see Elijah raising the son of the widow at Zarephath in 1 Kings 17. We won't turn to these. And in fact, Elijah himself, along with Enoch, was taken before he even died. Where was he taken if there was no life after death, if there was not some resurrection? 
Elisha's raising of the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings 4. Samuel came back from the dead, if you'll remember, to speak to Saul in 1 Samuel 8 when he, Saul, went to see the witch of Endor because God had refused to speak to him. And so he was trying to get some message from the grave, from beyond the grave, at least from Samuel. And at the very least, these accounts show that the physical death of the body is not the end of life, is not the end of existence, but the person who inhabited that body continues to live beyond the grave. And beyond those examples, there are the direct statements of Scripture. You remember Joseph, uh, Job, who said that he will see his Redeemer in the flesh, he will see there is Redeemer in the flesh, Job 19, 26. It's in the Psalms, it's in Isaiah, it's in Daniel. Let me read to you Daniel chapter 12. He says this, There was many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. In other words, they will awake and come again to be united with the body to Endure for eternity the consequences of their response to God. There is in Isaiah 53 the resurrection. Him who is going to be crucified and put to death and be a guilt offering is the one who will yet, in Isaiah 53.10, see his offspring. Why? Because he will come to life again. But now here's a problem with all of those texts. The Sadducees, remember, rejected them all. They rejected the authority of them all. And they only held to the authority of the Pentateuch. And so all of those things would have been a non-issue to them. And so the Lord takes them on their own turf and He goes to the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses. And not only the Law of Moses and the Torah, but to one of the most holy places in all of the Law of Moses, the episode of the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6 and 15. This is the place where God revealed Himself to His people. He was revealing Himself to them who are now a nation as their covenant-keeping God. And so Jesus takes them there and He refutes them and shows them their own ignorance of their own Scriptures. And so He says to them regarding the resurrection in verse 31, Have you never read what was spoken to you by God? They would have affirmed that. This was clearly a word from God. So they have no excuse at that level. And then he quotes from Exodus 3, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now this is an incredible statement, both of the resurrection and about Scripture. And again, I want you to notice here that these false teachers did not know the Scriptures they claimed to know. And the reality is they did not know them nor see this because they did not want to. They were satisfied with a superficial understanding of Scripture because it worked to their advantage. It worked to their advantage. They didn't necessarily want to know these things deeply. They only wanted to know what they needed to know to justify their own lives. That's all they wanted to know. And the Pharisees essentially did the same thing. And so Jesus is going to confront them, as he, we've seen several times already in Matthew, over the Sabbath and over their traditions. And Jesus says, have you never read? Have you never read? Do you not even know your own scriptures? And this is a very, very important point for us to notice. Because false teachers have and exploit a superficial knowledge of scripture. It is a grave danger when we only have a superficial knowledge of Scripture. If that's all we know, if we only know the basics and never advance beyond that, then we are prepared for 
deception. Listen to what he says. Just listen to this in 2 Peter. You know the verse, but listen. Again, in verse three, chapter 3, verse 17 of 2 Peter. You know, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, uh, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Be aware, because they are, he says previously, untaught and unstable, and so they distort, as the teachings of Paul, also as they do the rest of Scripture to their own destruction. That's what false teachers do. They don't understand it, or they have a superficial knowledge of it, and so they take that superficial knowledge and they twist it and distort it and mold it to a lie that serves their own ends and their own purposes. And that's exactly what these Sadducees are doing. It's exactly what false teachers do all the time. We must be diligent to examine everything by Scripture and to grow in our knowledge of the Word and sound doctrine. And I want to just say here as a footnote, this is really a footnote, don't be afraid of reading theological books. How to Be a Better Christian are important books to read, and we need to have those too. But don't be afraid to pick up something on doctrine, something that makes you think a little bit more deeply about the Christ we believe in. I would encourage you to do that. I would encourage you to expand your reading and to understand things. It is by that that we are guarded against error the more deeply that we think about truth. I would also suggest this, that we do not read through Scripture in a hurried manner. Take your time. It's better to read Scripture with a deeper understanding, but read smaller amounts, than it is to read vast amounts, but not really understand what you're reading, and it turns out to be only words. I would encourage you, when you read, think about it, meditate, write questions down, pray, have discussions, talk about it, think deeply about Scripture. That is clearly what these Sadducees did not do and those who are like them. I want you to notice also in Jesus' reply this, that he demonstrates the trustworthiness of Scripture's authority in its detail. Notice that Jesus is making a significant theological point and what is he basing his argument on? Look at the text. Just answer that in your question in about you know, the next five seconds. What is he basing his argument on? Yes, a text of Scripture that they knew, but what else? He's basing his argument on a tense of the verb. He's basing his argument on whether that is said to be in the present tense or the past tense. That's what he's saying. And this shows the absolute detail of Scripture. Paul will do the same thing in Galatians 3.16. He'll make a whole theological argument based on whether the term is seed or seeds in the plural. It is seed speaking of Christ. Don't miss that. Don't miss the detail of Scripture and the trust that Jesus, the Son of God, the living Word Himself, is placing in the written Word. Those who say that Scripture is only generally true in relation to spiritual matters or it's a book full of historical, scientific, factual errors, Jesus refutes them. He refutes them and says that's nonsense. How can a book be trusted in some matters and not in everything? And who decides where those errors are? And who where the truth is? And men have been proven wrong over and over and over again who try to discredit the Word of God. It is a divine book through human authors given to us by God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who moved these men along to write the exact words of God that He wanted recorded for us. Don't miss that. 
Jesus said, not one jot or tittle will pass away until all is fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away, he'll say later, but my words will not pass away. But the fact is here, this was in the Pentateuch and therefore they should have known it. There was no excuse for missing it. And they are displaying the opposite of the faith of Abraham they claim to believe because Abraham believed in the resurrection, didn't he? Isn't that why he offered up his son Isaac? Believing that God had the power even to give his son back from the dead? He understood that. There are more places than even Jesus goes that could have made the point, but this is sufficient. It is a very serious thing then, I would add to this, to become a teacher of the Word of God and have such a wrong and superficial knowledge of it. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing as such you will incur a stricter judgment. And here these religious leaders in Israel are responsible for what they are teaching. I want you to notice this also. Not only is it a powerful statement regarding Scripture, it's an incredibly powerful statement regarding our eternal relationship with God. And this is where we'll end. Now some, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now some here argue that he's only talking about he was their God while they are living. But the statement is repeated in the Old Testament in reference to God's faithfulness as the covenant-keeping God whose promises do not end at death. Psalm 73, he longed for the glory of God not only on earth, but that covenant intimacy and blessing that he would enjoy with his God once he left this earth. Once he left the grave. The covenant was not only, and the promises were not only for this world, but they endured in terms of God's blessing all the way to eternity. Now this is an extremely encouraging and sobering reality. It means that this life is not it. It's not everything. It means this is not the end. The knowledge of God is not simply an important matter in this world. It's of an infinitely greater importance in eternity. And to paraphrase Jesus' words, it's like he's saying this. God doesn't go away when we die. He doesn't go away. He's the one with whom we have to do for all eternity. That's what he's essentially saying. And so it's a plea to them to consider your words, consider your souls. Now, get this, when God said that to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3, Abraham had been dead for a long time. As a matter of fact, Abraham at that point had been dead for about 541 years. Isaac had been dead for about 436 years. Jacob had been dead at that point for about 409 years when, Jesus, when God spoke those words to Moses. When Jesus spoke these words to the Sadducees, Abraham had been dead for nearly 2,000 years. Isaac had been dead for over 1,800 years. And Jacob had been also dead for about 1,859 years. And yet he's saying, God is still their God as much now, today that I speak these words, as when he spoke them in the Old Testament. He says they're not dead, they're still living before God. And we already saw this earlier. Where did we see this in the Gospel? You remember? The Mount of Transfiguration. The Mount of Transfiguration. Who appeared with him on the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. And at that point, at the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses had been dead for over 1,400 years, and Elijah had been dead for about 845 years, and yet there they were, alive and speaking with Christ on the mountain. And now it's 2,000 years later. It gives a new sense to amazing grace when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We're talking forever. That's the point. So this is an incredible statement, an incredible statement. And I want you to note this as more than a footnote, but just put this on the side. When 
Matthew has already identified Jesus as God with us. And in John 8, 58, Jesus identifies himself with being the I am who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. Jesus in John 8, 58 says, that was me. It was me. And so it's just as much to say here, Christ could, that he is the one who is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He who spoke those words with Moses is the same God who is speaking to them now and speaks to us through his word. That is an incredibly powerful scenario. The same God is speaking to you. To you. Now his point here again is this, that death is not the end. Death is not the end. That is the simple point. God is still their God. He was their God then. He is their God now. He will be their God forever. Because they're alive. And so is God. This is what Jesus meant when he said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And Jesus said, do you believe this? Now what does he mean, will live even if he dies and will never die? What does he mean? Simply this. That to have eternal life is to share in the very life of God with our union with Christ by the Spirit of God. It's something that begins at the moment of salvation and never ends. And even when there's physical death, the death of the body does nothing to affect the life that we share with God. That's his, that's his point in John 11. No, that's his point. That's why to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord is very much better. And for those of us who lose loved, one, lose loved ones that go on before this, there is the deep pain of human separation, of course, but there is also that great joy to know that we will be with them again, forever enjoying the presence of the Lamb and the Father and the Spirit together in unceasing joy. So Jesus says they're not dead. They're not dead. We always live to God. But the reality is, then for believers, it's a motivation to live in light of this fact, a motivation toward holiness, a motivation to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. It's a motivation to realize that nothing we do in the Lord is in vain. We can abound in the work of the Lord because it is a work to the living Lord forever that will receive its just reward. And it is to Him who lives forever. So we do our work in confidence, our spiritual work in confidence. And if you know that you are a believer in large measure by whether these specific truths convict you and motivate you in your inner man, in your secrecy of your thoughts, in your heart, what motivates you? If you understand the resurrection and you have trusted in Christ, then the reality that you will live forever to God is something that drives you to obey and to turn from sin and to trust Him. But for the unbeliever, as these Sadducees, it's a plea. It's a warning to them. It's a warning. It's a subtle warning in some ways, although not so subtle. It's a warning for them to consider the shortness of this life. It's a warning for them to consider the eternal reality of their soul. Saying, you guys think that it's over, but it's not over. You guys say that there's no resurrection, but guess what? There is a resurrection. You guys think that once the body's in the grave, there's no accountability for your sin. And Jesus is essentially laying before them and saying, there is accountability. God is still there. He doesn't go away. He doesn't disappear. He doesn't fade off into the distance. In fact, when you die, God becomes more real to you than he ever was here on earth. Because you will stand before him. 
And so for unbelievers, such as these Pharisees or anyone else that denies the resurrection or anyone else that fails to put their trust in Christ who was resurrected from the dead and to live in love and trust in Him, Jesus says this in John 5, 28. He says, An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did the good to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. He's not speaking there, obviously, about those who morally fulfilled the law and did not morally fulfill the law. He's saying those who in their life demonstrated a repentant reality and the life of God in them and union with Christ and who's demonstrated in their life, they will receive a resurrection of life and live life fully to God. Those who demonstrated their rejection of Christ, rejection of the gospel, rejection of the truth, and rejection of repentance, it's going to be a resurrection, but it is a resurrection to judgment. And he said this, didn't he, in the parable previously? I think we mentioned it last week. Verse 13 of chapter 22. The king said to the servant, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is essentially conjuring that up again and reminding them and saying, Consider it. Consider the reality of life after death. It is true. And the fact is, as was mentioned at the beginning, even beyond the arguments of Scripture, which are clear enough, beyond the arguments about the nature of God, which are clear enough, the fact remains that Christ was raised from the dead. That fact stands as a stubborn reality before all men, that Christ was raised from the dead. And this is the final and ultimate grounds of our confidence in the resurrection from the dead, that Christ already did, and that He promises the same for us. It affirms the reality of the resurrection and everything else that he said. And so Paul said, look, he has furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Therefore, you are without excuse. And this is, again, a point that these men will be confronted with very shortly. Because though they will kill him, they will go to an empty grave three days later. And they have to deal with that fact. And they have to deal with that fact. And again, it's sad that they rejected it. They rejected it as we mentioned. They counseled together how they could cover it up. How we could continue to deny this resurrection. And how sad that is. How sad. Because all they saw in the resurrection was a threat to themselves. All they saw in the resurrection was not the glorious grace of God, their covenant-keeping God who is willing to draw them in and envelop them in His own life and forgive them of their sin and to give them a hope and a promise and the kingdom. They didn't see that in the resurrection. They didn't see the glorious truths of all the promises of the prophets, all of the promises of Jesus while He was here. They didn't see any of that. All they saw was a threat to themselves. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And yet, the glory of the resurrection stands. And the reason that they saw it that way, and this is always what it's going to come down to, they were unwilling to acknowledge their sin and their need of God to do everything. They simply didn't want grace. You hold up grace next to authority and power and influence, grace just isn't that appealing to the heart not convicted of sin. Nice idea. Works for some, might make you a better person, but it certainly is not what I'm willing to forsake everything to gain Christ who raised from the dead. And sadly, that's as far as we know how it stayed with them. 
But not for us, I hope. We trust in Christ who raised from the dead. And we trust that the resurrection is our hope. It is our anticipation to be with him forever in our bodies, in a new and perfected flesh described by Paul as immortal and glorious. We long for that. We hope for that. That's what we're banking on. We banked our whole lives on that. I pray that's true of you too. And that's what we celebrate this morning in the Lord's table. The life and the death of Christ. His life that was counted for our own. Read what was in the front of the bulletin. That just struck me this week. 130 AD. Here is someone who understood with clarity the resurrection of Christ. That the righteous one was his, righteous one, right, his righteousness and his hope. And so when we come together to the Lord's table this morning... I want to encourage you out of faithfulness to Scripture first to examine your life and see if there's any sin you're not willing to deal with. See if there's any bitterness in your heart, any unforgiveness, any hidden and secret lust that you are willfully and knowingly holding on to. If there is, then now is the time to come clean, to repent, to bring your life before the light of the presence of God and the truth of God and to get right with Him and receive His grace to receive His mercy. He will gladly forgive you of every sin, even that sin. He will receive you with arms of grace and mercy and bring you into His delight and His joy and His life if you but will be willing to deal with your sin. For the rest of us, I pray that it is a great time of encouragement as we remember the great cost of our salvation, the great fullness and the freedom at which God gave Himself for us on the cross that we might live with Him forever. So I'm going to pray and the men will come forward and as Ruth plays, uh, as the men pass out the elements, spend that time to fellowship with the Lord, to examine your heart, to worship Him for His great and marvelous grace. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We do thank You for the glorious truth of the resurrection. The resurrection that begins with Your own, which confirmed everything You did on the cross, was in fact accepted by God. It was an acceptable sacrifice, which confirms for us that the grave is not the end. And you who have all power to create heaven and earth, you who have all power over death, has all power to conform our bodies to the body of your glory on that great day, we who know you. Will you fill our minds and our hearts with a greater understanding and appreciation of all that we have in the resurrection? Will you fill our hearts with the glory of the authority and the sufficiency of your word which tells us of those glories and how we might live in anticipation to your honor and with joy. And Father, I do pray for all of those here that this would indeed be a reality in their hearts. And if not, that before they leave today, they would make it so. That they would trust you, that they would turn to you, that they would embrace you and know you for the glorious God of grace and wonder and majesty that you are. Thank you for forgiveness of sin. Thank you for the cross, the resurrection, and our, your return. It's in your most blessed name we pray, amen.